Time is short this morning. There's many things we could say. Um, my job is just to sort of give a little bit of a frame, and then we want to get on to examining a little bit of the um, actual data and results. And I think the key thing, obviously, is to try to get a sort of discussion, a shared understanding about what this might mean in terms of um, policy priorities and, frankly, even the policy agenda more generally looking forward in relation to migration in the UK. Uh, the, the, the thing will be split up in terms of me doing that. Rob will come in with some uh, focus on the data and the analysis, and then Will's going to chip in with some more general comments if we have time around uh, the trajectory of this current government's strategy towards integration. Um, now, a couple of framing points. Uh, I suppose the most important is to say that uh, we were tasked uh, as, bunch of, as, as part of a bunch of people uh, that the Migration Advisory Committee looked to last summer to take forward a suite of projects on migration impacts. I mean, I haven't got time to sort of go into all of that. We'd have to sort of have half-day half seminar on, on all the results and, and arguments and so on and so forth. But the main thing is that clearly government through uh, MAC is interested in uh, trying to get a, a fairly firm handle on, one, uh, what are these impacts? And I think most people here would say before you do that work out, what you're exactly measuring, so you're clear about what those impacts actually tell you. And the second of all, how they might relate one to the other to give an uh, overall uh, coherent picture about whether or not, uh, if you want from a very narrow point of view, from an economic cost-benefit perspective, we can say something meaningful about uh, the way in which Im immigration has been impacting upon the UK. Now, there's many degrees of detail and nuance below that, but essentially I'm summarising something I think the Chair of MAC would say if he was here this morning. Albert feeds into that, but you will have noticed, and you won't need me to tell you, the significant thing about a project on trying to take forward uh, integration and cohesion impacts that, of course, by definition, it can easily mask the impacts that are going on elsewhere. So on one hand, we've got someone in you know, one corner of the room doing some work on job impacts, someone else doing something on health or schooling impacts. There's nothing to say, and there's nothing very much in the literature to su suggest that the uh, impacts on integration, and particularly cohesion, are separate and standalone. These things may not be independent one of one another. And the way to think about that is that uh, if you ask people, and we've relied very much on you know, perceptional data, uh, whether or not they think people are getting along in particular communities, uh, within and across different communities and migrant groups, um, that, that of course can mask underlying degrees of anxiety, either about the quality of their public services, the state of the local employment market, the degree of congestion in public services, transportation, uh, and frankly, it may also pick up quite a lot of the local consequences of the national immigration debate. If the debate nationally is sceptical, hostile, it would be a wonder if locally uh, you had no sort of residue, no impact of that. So these things are not separate, my first point to you. The second thing is that um, although most of our empirical work has been given over to uh, looking at cohesion on the ground using an um, inductive approach, asking the question how could it and how indeed is it measured empirically and working backwards to try and develop an understanding of cohesion that's of relevance to policymakers. Although that is true, it's also worthwhile looking at the other bit of this, uh, this brief, which was integration. And integration, of course, has been an important issue in any country of mass immigration going back, any rich country going back at least half a century. And it's as well to remember, I think we do in our report, early, uh, the MAC report early on, uh, pick out, if I, if I can, a famous 1949 Royal Commission on Population, just looking forward to the nature of population and population development in this country, post-war reconstruction, skill shortages and so on and so forth. And there is an interesting quote in there, and I'm going to just take the trouble to sort of read it out. And it says, in the future, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, um, we should be looking towards uh, migration, and, but these migrants would be, and I quote, it's important, 
They should be of one good human stock, and they should not be prevented by their religion or race from intermarrying with the host population and becoming merged into it. 1949, Royal Commission on Population. And in many senses, that sort of set of ideas has underpinned uh, uh, many things that have gone on in integration. We've translated that quote to mean essentially two things. Perennial question in British politics and public policy. One, are they like us? And two, what could we do to make them more like us? Now, they seem slightly tired and dated ways of putting it. But all the time, under the heading of integration, we are looking at the impacts in terms of um, particular outcomes for particular groups and asking ourselves the question, are these merging, or sorry, converging over time? Is it the case that a migrant who comes to the United Kingdom in the 1960s or the 1990s or 2005, is it the case that over a period of time he or she and their family have sort of outcomes in terms of health, education, employment, etc., etc., that begin to converge with the average of that society. And that gives us some foundation for thinking about integration. Uh, why is that important? Because we know empirically that some groups uh, are converging with the sort of uh, host population average and in fact sort of surpassing it, going off in the other direction, whilst behind them there are many so-called left-behind groups where the uh, outcomes for them have uh, stagnated, in some cases getting rather worse. Give an obvious example, uh, the, uh, the compulsory school outcomes for uh, young black boys in our state schooling system are roughly what they were in the early 1960s when the first government report was commissioned looking at the state of Afro-Caribbeans in the compulsory schooling system. So that's a really depressing downbeat story. By contrast, you don't need me to give you the short version, or I will give you the very short version of the sort of East African Asian model minority story. The press love this and they talk about their high achievements, etc., etc. You know the details. But remember, within that, we need to pay a bit of attention to the fact that, one, this is a community that came into the UK with English language as their lingua franca, two, they were urbanised, three, they were white-collar, and four, they had reasonable levels of women participating in the labour market before migration. All four of those things are pretty good matches to the UK labour market and the UK society in, in the intervening 30 or 40 years. Uh, if you look at that, if you compare them from a rural peasantry from northern India uh, and from Bangladesh and, and Pakistan, you'll see very big contrasts. Uh, so that's something about integration. A uh, couple of things going back now to cohesion itself. Um, one thing we've asked is, um, uh, we've sort of you know, had, had a look at this, and we said, well, it probably seems, the literature seems to suggest it points to a number of interlocking uh, aspects and behaviours. One of these would be the extent to which people feel that they are sort of coming together with sort of shared values and shared identities. Uh, and where they have a shared identity, there's a possibility, maybe even a probability, of communities having a shared purpose as well, so that they commit to that. They report in surveys that they have some degree of, of as it were, uh, sharing uh, in, in terms of trust and confidence in their fellow members within their communities, and those go across uh, uh, ethnic or indeed uh, migration lines. But the really important question within all of that, I think even if you get some evidence on that, is to ask ourselves, which I think we have, uh, is to say, is, is there any evidence to suggest that as people themselves are dissimilar or similar, so that either they look the same or they don't look the same, or they have a different migrant background or they don't, uh, or they may have a different economic background with one another, do those kinds of standalone differences, dissimilarities, condition, colour, or in some cases jeopardise the extent to which they have shared values, shared identity, and a shared purpose. 
Or is the opposite the case, which is that uh, the evidence to support uh, shared identity and shared purpose does not seem to be, uh, be affected by uh, that degree of difference. So difference is the important thing. Do we have to be homogenous on all those kind of indicators in order to get positive results in terms of uh, trust and confidence in local communities uh, at, at, at that level? And the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to hand over to Rob in a short, short moment, is to say um, there's another point of sort of just clarifying the concept. Uh, you could take a fairly relaxed sort of armchair view of what we mean by cohesion. And we look for people uh, displaying degrees of trust and confidence in one another in this sort of perceptional data that we report. And that would be a very passive, inactive view of what we mean by cohesion. In other words, they're reporting little more than the absence of overt conflict. It's not that they positively have confidence in their fellow community members, but actually they know there's no overt conflict, so they've got no reason in particular to single out a lack of confidence. But what we're reporting is an absence of conflict, nothing more than that. That could be one interpretation of this data. A more uh, active, a more proactive view of this would be to say, well, actually, that's not good enough. What we need is for people to report that they are proactively engaging with their neighbours, so to speak, and second of all, there's real evidence, uh, for, sorry for the social science jargon, for reciprocity. They actually do things with one another. They, 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 they share not just values, but they share behaviours and activities. They pool that, they're prepared to do that. Uh, in, the, in the very sort of uh, casual way which the Economist newspaper sometimes put this, we really don't have an evidence to the extent to which people actually just rush out their front doors and genuinely share cups of sugar with one another on baking day. Now, I'm sure baking day doesn't exist nowadays in cups of sugar, but whatever the equivalent of that would be, that's kind of what we're trying to get at, proactively doing something that, that reflects some degree of uh, active reciprocity rather than, as I said, inactive, inactively thinking that everything is fine. Rob is now going to take us through some of the measurement issues uh, and then get into some of the data and the analysis. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Um So after that sort of conceptual introduction uh, down to some nitty-gritty uh, about the data, um, <clears throat> first of all, a few things about the challenges that actually attempting to assess these kind of things empirically present. These are sort of multiple. Uh, first of all, we were interested in particularly the impact of new migration on cohesion and integration, and that requires good data on migration. Uh, and if you're wanting to look at cohesion, that's really a quality of local community. So you need data on migration at the lowest local level possible. That's not easy to get hold of. Uh, a second issue um, is when you're trying to measure these impacts, you know, the, the, the distinctions that are drawn administratively about different categories of people probably don't apply very strongly uh, in people's lived experience. So, for example, it's not by any means certain, in fact, we have many good reasons to doubt the idea that survey respondents will draw any particular distinction between new and old migrants. They may recognise that their area is diverse, but they'll have no idea, really, if that diversity is the result of recent inflow of migrants or, in fact, that most of those people may even be um, British-born. Um, a second big challenge in terms of measurement here is that new migrants tend to move to areas that already have a great deal of uh, existing diversity, previous waves of migration, second generation children of migrants, and that the areas that they tend to move to are also tend to be socially very deprived. And we know that social deprivation is also closely related to cohesion measures. Um, 
A final issue is that um, perceptions of migration more generally outside of the local area can be as important in driving these kind of things as the local experience of migration. People's sense of what migration is doing may not be driven by what's going on in the local area, it may be driven by a national narrative. So that's a few kind of cautions and limitations uh, here. So what we tried to do, what we started with the National Insurance Number Database, which is a a database that uh, is maintained of all national insurance numbers issued to new migrants. That has advantages and disadvantages. The the chief advantage is that it's relatively up to date and it can be um, downloaded at the local authority level, which is the level we look at. Its disadvantages are that a lot of those people may have left. They get issued with a national insurance number. Many of them will be temporary migrants and then they leave again. And then you have a kind of aggregate measure of all the numbers that have been issued, but you have no idea what proportion of those numbers have actually been issued to people who are still here. Also, there's uh, a variable lag in time between when a migrant actually arrives and when the national insurance number is is issued. So some categories of migrants, for example, asylum seekers, often receive their national insurance numbers several years after arriving in the country. So in short, it's by no means perfect data. And then to look at cohesion and integration, we make use of the citizenship uh, survey data, which provides a, a suite of measures that I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, we were uh, briefed to compare the impact of European economic area migration, principally in the past five or six years, migration from Central and Eastern Europe, with migration from outside the EEA. Um, now, this again isn't very easy to, to uh, sort of disaggregate because there's a very strong correlation between the level of EEA migration into a local authority and the level of non-EEA migration. Uh, It's something like 0.8 or 0.9, which basically means that for every 100 extra migrants from one group, you're likely to get an average 90 extra migrants from the other group. So figuring out the impacts, the separate impacts of the two groups at this level of aggregation is extremely difficult. Um, And as I, I mentioned, Uh, before we know that there are confounding factors here, pre-existing ethnic diversity, pre-existing deprivation. Um, So a case study, the way we're measuring cohesion is there's a set of questions in there, they tend to correlate quite strongly with each other that are kind of getting respondents' perceptions about their local area. Do they think people pull together in the neighbourhood? Do they think that people in the area can be trusted? How satisfied are they with the neighbourhood as a place to live? And do they regard it as a place where people get on well together. Integration is, is really, uh, as Shamit was laying out, it's a quality of individuals. Are they like us? Are they becoming like us? The measures that we made use of in the citizenship survey were measures of trust in Britain's institutions, a measure of, of sense of belonging to Britain, and a, a other broader measures of social attitudes. Now, there's many, many ways to cut the integration cake, as it were, and we wouldn't by any means argue that this was a comprehensive list. It's very much just a first exploration. So, to take social cohesion and non-EEA national insurance number registrations, those circles there are individual local authorities. This is just a plot of their scores on this index that we created that runs from zero to one. The line that you'll see is the sort of uh, best fit line of the relationship. The bigger circles are bigger local authorities. The circles relate to their side. As you can see, there's some evidence of a modest negative relationship there. The areas that have received larger numbers of national insurance number registrations relative to their population between the the period we had data for is 2002 to 2008 um, seem to have somewhat lower (coughs) social cohesion scores 
If we look at the European Economic Area um, registrations, we see the same modest negative relationship. Unsurprisingly, because as I said, they're very closely related to each other, these two levels of migration. But then if you look at the relationship with deprivation, we use the index of multiple deprivation, which is a sort of multi-dimensional measure of deprivation, we see a much stronger relationship with social cohesion scores than we see when we look at the migration measures. And this is important because when you then put these, these things in together in a regression model where you try and control, you basically isolate the influence of each, controlling for the influence of the other, what we find is that it's really deprivation that seems to be driving this relationship, not migration. So areas with high <coughs> levels of migration score lower on cohesion, but that's because they're poor areas. Migrants naturally move to poor areas because very often they don't really have the capital to move anywhere else. They also tend to move to diverse areas, uh, but diversity also doesn't seem to be as important here as deprivation. It's worth emphasising as well that this result is very consistent with a number of other studies that other academics have been doing at lower levels of aggregation than this. The uh, finding from a while back that ethnic diversity seems to be related to social cohesion just hasn't held up in more recent academic analysis. It does seem to be much more the case that diverse areas are less cohesive, but they're less cohesive because they're poor. Uh, if you take an area that's poor and not diverse, it will also be less cohesive. The, the issue is social deprivation, not ethnic diversity. But you can find a relationship if you just look at the one variable because the two are, co are closely related to each other. Now moving on to integration. This is responses to a question about whether migrants are more trusting of, of political institutions than, than the native-born. Basically, we, the three institutions, you trust the police, you trust the council, you trust parliament. Um, basically, everyone trusts the police equally. That might change now. Um, at about sort of 85% rates. But then if you look at trusting uh, in political institutions, parliament and the local council, the least trusting group are the native-born whites. Um, new migrants tend to have very high levels of trust in the political institutions, the highest of all the groups. Then as they live here for longer, they kind of become, they, 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 they integrate to the majority level of low trust. They become disaffected. Oh yeah, we really like Parliament. Oh, maybe not after seven years. Um, so we get integration. Whether that's desirable integration, we may have reason to doubt. Then if we look more broadly at ethnic minority groups, including native-born ethnic minority groups, what we find is that this effect of higher trust in political institutions doesn't actually go away even amongst the second generation. So with one important exception, which is the UK-born Black Caribbean community, of very low levels of trust in Parliament, every other minority group in Britain, whether British-born or born abroad, is more trusting in Parliament than native-born Britons. Um, quite considerably so in, in many cases. Um, in terms of sense of belonging, what we find here is that when migrants are relatively new and they've been here less than seven years, they tend to express a slightly lower level of belonging to Britain. Once they're established and they've been here more than seven years, the levels of belonging to Britain actually again go up higher than the levels that you find amongst the native-born with native parents. So on that measure of integration, uh, it does look like, you know, naturally when migrants first arrive, they aren't quite as attached to society, but once they've been here for a while, they do seem to form a sense of attachment to Britain. Um, so that's the good news story. There are areas where migrants do retain distinctive attitudes. One that, that we, uh, we highlighted in the report is concern about uh, offensive speech. The question here was everyone should be allowed to say whatever they want, even if it offends others. And uh, white native-born Britons tend to agree with that at about two-thirds. Most minority groups, less than half of them, 
uh, agree with that item. We don't know why exactly um, this is, but I suspect it's because many of these minority groups will have been on the receiving end of offensive speech a good deal more often than the average white person would be, so they're probably more aware of the trade-offs involved in this than the average white respondent. <clears throat> so some emerging conclusions. There does seem to be a relationship between cohesion and re the recent migration, but that relationship is an artefact of the kind of areas that receive uh, a great deal of migration. The relationship with deprivation uh, is much stronger and more robust. We don't find any difference between the impact of European and non-European migration. It would be very difficult for us to actually find an impact at this level because they're so closely related to each other. We find that migrants report a great deal of trust in political institutions and a strong sense of belonging to Britain, which is a pretty positive story, I think, about integration. Um, but we also do find that, that they retain some distinctive beliefs, even through to the second generation. Some, some limitations, very important again to highlight these. Your local authority is not a very good pro uh, proxy for uh, your neighbourhood. Um, we, we used it simply because it was the, the, the only measure we could get. I mean, I live in Manchester. Manchester is not my neighbourhood. There's an awful lot of different neighbourhoods in Manchester, and they're very, very diverse. So we get a great deal of... Um, uh, variability also in size, so rural local authorities are much smaller, more homogenous, you get big urban authorities. What we would like is to have data at lower levels. Um, we can't control in the cohesion models for individual level differences because we're just looking at aggregate averages. And we have relatively limited and potentially biased measures of the migration inflow. Um, so this is very much a sort of rough cut, sort of first step, but you know, much more work would need to, would need to be done to sort of establish this systematically.